In 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9 are focusing on just one topic. It's the topic of giving. The background to chapters 8 and 9 is that Paul is organizing a major collection for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Corinth has committed to contribute to that collection. But so far, they haven't delivered on their commitment. And in these two chapters, Paul is encouraging them to follow through on their commitment. But his approach, as we've been seeing over the last two weeks, is not to command them to give. Instead, he is working to persuade them. He wants them to give willingly. At the very end of last week's passage, he said he hoped for a generous gift from Corinth, not one that was grudgingly given. For Paul, the person's heart and their motivation for giving is just as important as the gift itself, if not more important than the gift itself. And in our passage this morning, Paul focuses in on our heart motivation. That's how he concludes these two chapters about giving. He wants us to get the right perspective on our giving. It's about investing God's provision for God's glory. If you haven't already turned there, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In the Church Bible, it's page 1163. And I'll read from verse 6 to the end of chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever." Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is God's word. As Paul comes to the end of these two chapters on giving, he gives us a correct understanding of our approach to giving, the supply of our giving, and the ultimate goal of our giving. Last week we stopped at chapter 9, verse 5. But verse 6 flows on directly from verse 5. 
In verse 5, Paul said he hoped for a generous gift from Corinth, not one grudgingly given. And now he focuses in on this issue of our approach to giving. First of all, Paul says it's to be generous and expectant. In verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Paul is saying that when it comes to giving, the Christian man or woman is to think of themselves as both a sower and a reaper. As they give, they're to be thinking about the harvest that will come from their giving. Why does a farmer put so much energy and time and money into planting a crop? What motivates him to be so generous in the work of sowing? It's the expectation that he's going to get a return for his investment. He puts a lot into the sowing because he hopes to reap a harvest. No farmer ever sows without that expectation. What would be the point? And Paul is telling us to think of our giving the same way. We're to give with expectation. We're to expect a harvest from our giving. And if we have that expectation, it will make us generous. We'll want to reap a lot, so we'll sow a lot. Generosity and expectancy go hand in hand. Expectancy fuels and motivates generosity. When we give our money and time to gospel work, we're to be thinking about the return that will come from our giving. And maybe that's where some of us fall down. We're aware that giving is something we're supposed to do, but we never think any further than that. And that kills our generosity. Generosity is a non-starter in those circumstances. If we think of giving to gospel work as the equivalent of throwing our money and our time down a black hole, if we think of it as some inconvenient duty that we're stuck with because we're Christians, then we need to develop our thinking. We're to expect something to come of our giving. Like the farmer planting his seed, we're to think of our giving as an investment, not a throwaway, not as paying our weekly subscription or our dues to the church. The more we develop this expectation of a return, the more generous we're going to be. Of course, the obvious question is, what should we be expecting when we give? What kind of returns are we talking about here? That's a crucial question. And later on in our passage, Paul will help us to answer it. So we're, we're going to come back to it. But here in verse 6, he just wants us to grasp the principle. We're never going to give generously unless we also give expectantly. Paul has more to say about our approach to giving. It's also to be planned and cheerful. Verse 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The plans for the collection in Jerusalem have been going on for quite a while. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this. 
On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul was asking each Corinthian believer to plan their giving. And that's his point here in verse 7. Giving on the spur of the moment is good, but it shouldn't be the pattern for our giving. We ought to give consideration to it and to come up with a plan that we stick to. Or as Paul puts it, we should decide in our heart what we're going to give. It's the same with a lot of things in the Christian life. If we decide to read our Bible whenever we feel like it or whenever we feel moved to do it, we probably won't read it very often. We need to plan for it, to structure it into our day. And we need to plan regular giving into our budget. And that way, even if our planning is pretty conservative, we'll give far more in the long run than if we just give on impulse, when some need moves us in the moment. It's good to be open to giving impulsively as well, whenever God presents us with an urgent need. But our general pattern should be regular planned giving. It should come from a considered decision. And if we're married, we should plan it together. It should be a joint commitment. Obviously, the specific situation here involves giving money. But all, th- this applies to our other giving as well. When it comes to serving in the church, don't just do it when the mood strikes you. Plan to do it. Ask the elders what the needs are in the church. Look at your own timetable. Look at the commitments you already have. And then make a decision that you can stick to. Some regular service that you plan for. It's good for us to respond to one-off needs for service and help. But over the long haul, we'll contribute far more and we'll be far more effective if we plan how we're going to give our time and energy. And that might include planning what we're going to drop in order to make room for our service. For example, if we have a hobby, maybe we'll plan to only give time to our hobby one day a week instead of two. Or maybe we'll give up a TV program that we normally watch. Whatever form of giving we're talking about, money or time, serious, committed giving doesn't rely on impulse. It involves planning. And then Paul adds that our planned giving is to be cheerful. It's not to be reluctant. It's not to be under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. When we sit down to plan our giving, what God loves to hear are questions like these. How much can we manage this year? Can we do a little bit more than we did last year? Rather than questions like this, how little can we get away with this year? Does my pay raise mean we have to give more this year? Maybe you're thinking, well, I've never been able to give cheerfully, so I suppose I ought to stop giving. 
God doesn't want my money unless I give it cheerfully. If we're thinking that way, we're missing Paul's point. It's true, God does want cheerful givers. If we're going to act like it's killing us to give, if we dress in black before we sign the check, then yes, we'd be better not giving. God really doesn't need our money. But if we're not cheerful givers, the thing to do is not to get excited because we found a get-out clause. No, the thing to do is to give attention to our heart. If we are unable to give cheerfully, then we have a heart problem. And that ought to concern us. So let's ask ourselves, why is it that God loves a cheerful giver? Why is that important to him? Surely it's because when we give cheerfully, we are worshiping him. We're saying to him, you are worth more to me than anything else. It's my pleasure to give this to you. I want to offer it up to you more than I want to spend it on myself. If that's not our attitude to giving, then our heart needs attention. We need to spend time focusing on the beauty and the worthiness of our God. And we need to ask God to melt our hearts as we focus on him. To help us love him more than we love the things money can buy us. Pressure from church leaders might make you give a little bit more. But it will never make you a cheerful giver. That requires a heart change. At this point, you might be thinking, well, okay, it's fine to talk about giving cheerfully, and I think that I can manage the cheerful part. The problem for me is finding the money to be cheerful with. I'm just not in a position to give, and I certainly can't give generously. Look then at what Paul says next. He deals with the supply for our giving. God supplies us generously so that we can be generous. Twice in these verses, Paul says, God will be generous to us so that we can be generous. He says it first in verse 8, and he says it in very comprehensive terms. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. When Paul says in verse 8, God will make all grace abound to you, he means financially and physically and spiritually. God will supply us in every way that we need to be supplied so we can be generous in every way. And I think that there are two mistakes we can make at this point. First of all, we can fail to recognize that God does provide for us in this way. And second, we can forget why he provides for us like this. First, we can fail to recognize that God does provide for us in this way. It's tempting for us, all of us, to look at our finances and think, well, if this is God being generous, then I'm not very impressed. 
I don't have any surplus at all. I'll leave the generosity to those God has blessed. Maybe most of us are tempted to think that way. But that's a mistake. Because the key phrase is having all that you need. And within that phrase, the key word is need. I think most of us, if not all of us, get confused about the word need. The Bible says we only need two things, food and clothing. And just to go easy on ourselves, we'll add a third thing, a roof over our heads. That's the list of what I need. That means most of the things I think I need aren't really needs at all. Maybe I can't imagine living without them, but I could live without them. I'm not suggesting that we should start living in bare houses and walking everywhere. But we probably do need to work harder and be more honest about sorting out the things we want and like from the things that we truly need. If we do that, then we'll realize God has been very generous to us. And we'll see that we have more ability than we thought to be generous to others. That leads to the second mistake we tend to make. We forget why it is that God provides for us generously. And so when our income goes up, instead of increasing our giving, we increase our spending and our saving. Yes, God loves to bless his children. And it's right for us to enjoy his blessings. But I don't think any of us, myself included, need to be told to go and spend more on good food and entertainment and gadgets and holidays. I think we're pretty good at enjoying the good things of life. What we need, I think, is to hear Paul's words in verses 10 and 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. John Wesley, in one of his sermons, used an illustration of a man that he knew. Now bear in mind, this is the 1700s. This man, Wesley said, earned 30 pounds a year. And he allocated himself 28 pounds for living expenses. He gave away two pounds. The next year, that man's income rose to 60 pounds. And he still lived on 28. That meant he gave away 32 Eventually, that man prospered so much that his earnings rose to 120 pounds a year, and he gave away 92, continuing to live on 28. It seems almost certain that the man in Wesley's illustration was Wesley himself. As he became more well-known, his writings earned him large, large sums of money, and he gave most of it away. Now, as I tell that, I know that inflation was minimal at that time. 
I know that Wesley married later on in life. He didn't have children to support. And we need to factor those things in when we hear this. But even when we do all of that, there's still a very important principle here. Wesley showed that increases in income don't have to be swallowed up by increases in our living expenses. Living by that principle would mean that for many of us, our giving would increase dramatically over the course of our lifetime. John Wesley understood the purpose of God's generous supply. It was so that Wesley could be generous. It wasn't so that he could keep climbing the ladder in terms of his living standard. Now, when you and I hear this, we shouldn't think of just two alternatives. We shouldn't think that either we have to turn into a hardcore Spartan overnight or just ignore this teaching because it seems too hard. There is another option open to us. We can begin by committing ourselves to take this teaching seriously instead of pretending that it isn't here. And then we can look for ways and ask God to show us ways that we can begin to put it into practice. Small adjustments that we can make so that we can begin to move in the direction of turning God's generosity to us into increased generosity to others. And surely one principle that we can begin to work with is the principle that increases in income don't have to be swallowed up by increases in living expenses. A pay raise doesn't have to mean that we go out and spend more on ourselves or pile up more for our retirement. It could mean that we give more away. I have no doubt that many of you are well ahead of me on this. But for all of us, once we get the wheels turning, our generosity will begin to gain momentum. And our cheerfulness will increase too. Before we move on, there's one phrase for us to notice in verse 10. Paul says, God will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? Well, normally in the New Testament, righteousness is a way of talking about our right standing with God. Through faith in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, and we no longer stand before God guilty and condemned. We are in the right with him. If that's what righteousness means, why does Paul use it here? Well, he's just said God will increase our store of seed, meaning he will give us the resources we need to sow generously, to give, to pass on God's blessing. So I think what Paul is saying at the end of verse 10 is that this is how righteous men and women behave. This generosity is part of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. It's part of what it means for the old to have gone and the new to have come. A generous way of life may not have been normal for us before we knew Christ, 
But it certainly is normal for men and women made righteous in Christ. Our new righteous condition shows itself in a new lifestyle. And one aspect of that lifestyle is generosity. When we belong to the Savior who gave even his body and blood for others, then we're going to begin to be like him. And we're going to be be generous too. So in verse 10, it's important to notice, Paul is telling us this teaching is not for the overachievers among God's people. It's for all of those who have been declared righteous in Christ. And God says that our generous sowing will produce a harvest. And now we're back to the question that came up earlier at the start. When we give expectantly, what kind of return should we be expecting? What form is it going to take? What sort of harvest should we be looking for? I once visited a large church in the U.S., and it was just before the summer holidays. Obviously, the church leaders were afraid their offering was going to drop as people headed off on their summer holidays. So there were posters up all around the church, including every single toilet cubicle. I checked just to make sure. And the posters said, don't miss out on a blessing. Arrange your tithe by direct debit before you go on holiday. Now it could be that I misunderstood the implication of that message. But the implication seemed to be that if I gave, then I could expect a blessing to come back to me personally, like a boomerang. So maybe if I give this year while I'm on holiday, God will give me more back. So next year I can go on an even better holiday. Now there's no doubt we are blessed personally when we give. Of course it may not always be in the form of more income. But we are blessed. But here in our passage when Paul talks about a harvest from our giving, he's not thinking of personal reward. He's not denying it. But it's not what he has in mind here. In the final section of our passage, he explains the ultimate goal of our giving. It's thanksgiving to the God who supplies. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 11. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Depending on how you read it, Paul says either three or four times here that the ultimate goal of our giving is thanksgiving to the God who supplies. 
Paul is thinking specifically of the believers in Jerusalem who are going to be receiving the collection. That's why he says in verse 11, through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul and his team of helpers will be carrying the Corinthians' gift to Jerusalem. It will be given through Paul and his helpers. And in verse 12, Paul points to two results or harvests that will come from the Corinthian generosity. First, it will supply the needs of God's people. And, he says, it will overflow in expressions of thanksgiving to God. Paul is clear that the second harvest is the most significant one. The grammar he uses is a way of contrasting something important with something more important. So the sense is your generosity is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also, and even more importantly, it's overflowing in thanks to God. That's because the believers in Jerusalem will know God has enabled these Corinthians to give. Back in chapter 8, Paul said his main motivation for carrying out this collection is in order to honor the Lord himself. And here, the carrot that Paul is holding in front of the Corinthians is not the promise that they'll reap a harvest of material blessings if they give. No, Paul's carrot is the promise that God will receive praise. He will be glorified through this. That's the return the Corinthians can expect on their investment. That's pretty obvious. This carrot won't have any effect on the Corinthians It won't motivate them at all unless they care about God being honored and praised. And it's just the same with us. Which is why our heart is the most important thing in all this. Paul points to that in verse 13 when he says, Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying, That when we grasp the gospel, we will live out the implications of the gospel. He made this point back in chapter 8. As he encouraged the Corinthians to be generous, he pointed them to the generosity of Christ. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. As we grasp the reality of God's generosity in Christ, it cannot help but produce generosity in us. And it will also produce a longing to see our generous God honored and praised. When we give to this church, or to the crisis in Syria, or to any of the ongoing works that we might support, We may have lots of reasons for our giving. But above all else, what we should be expecting to reap from our sowing is a harvest of praise to God. 
that praise might come from new converts to Christ. It might come from believers who've received their daily bread for a few more days. It might come from pastors in Africa who've received some training and been given some books to study with. Whatever Christian ministry we give to, we give generously because we expect a harvest of praise to God. We've said several times that the key to all of this is our hearts. If our hearts are right, the generosity and the cheerfulness will take care of itself. And so having mentioned others praising God, Paul now joins in himself. And he points us to the most generous one of all. In verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Another translation says, his gift too wonderful for words. Almost certainly, Paul is talking about Jesus himself as the gift here. One writer says, Jesus Christ is the divine gift which inspires all other gifts. When we begin to grasp what we have in Jesus, we will want the God who gave Jesus to receive praise. Not just from us, but from every corner of the earth. And we will give what we can to increase that harvest of praise to God. Before we come to the table and give thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ, we're going to respond to God's word as we sing, My heart is filled with thankfulness.